Hi, and welcome to the Vocational Education Podcast. Hi, my name's Dan Hill, and welcome to episode number three of the Vocational Education Podcast. Today, we have a couple of interesting topics. Uh, One of the old favorites, which is accredited versus non-accredited training. We hear from a couple of experienced trainers on that, plus uh, some opinions of my own. Feel free to disagree with them. That's what I'm here for. Now, the first topic off the news rank today is the brand new MySkills website. It's great to have a look at, and I must admit, it's a lot easier to navigate than previous iterations. In this particular one, the home page allows you to search for what you can learn by title, occupation, code if you know it, or the industry sector, and then where you can go. So an advanced list of RTOs and um, public and private training organizations. In my opinion, the MySkills website hits the nail on the head. I think it's quite a good website. It does offer more information than previous websites, and for a student searching for information, I think it's fantastic. Similar to previous websites of its uh, of its kind, we see a search function uh, under qualification search, very similar to what we used to do, but it's got keywords in too, and the keyword search function is much easier to use than the previous keyword search, search functions on the old NTIS and even train.gov.au. That being said, it does redirect you. We're applicable to TGA, and I think that's a smart move. There's no use duplicating these sorts of things and making it more difficult for people to uh, data mine or, or, or search for what they actually need. And in addition to that, it has a fantastic links page to all the government sites. Now, these include uh, a huge list of government training sites, plus a list of all the industry skills councils um, and peak na- uh, national bodies, including... Uh, ACPET and uh, TAFE Directors Australia. So have a look at the site if you haven't already. Um, easy enough to navigate. I do congratulate the Australian government on this one. It could have been so wrong, <laughs> but it, it looks like they've got it quite right at this point in time. I'd imagine it will, it will be more populated as time goes on with more and more information. I hope that is the case. I hope that it's not a stagnant website. Anyway, Uh, Tell us your thoughts. Don't forget to go to our Facebook page, which is just the Vocational Education Podcast Facebook page, and leave us comments uh, about this episode or about upcoming episodes that you might want to um, have some input into. So let's now move on to our first topic of discussion. The subject of accredited versus non-accredited training has been covered in many discussions. Not only has it been covered in open forums such as LinkedIn, but even online you'll find a lot of examples of where people have um, taken the argument one side or the other. Now, the main point is in the definition of accreditation and how that relates to the outcomes. That's my perspective, I should say, not the only perspective. So let's have a look to start with. Accredited means nationally recognized training in the form of a qualification or units from a training package or accredited courses uh, created by private organizations in line with the AQTF standards for accredited courses in Victoria and WA and the NVR accredited courses regulated by ASQA. Don't get too confused by that. Simply, uh, if it's recognized, it means it's met the basic criteria and layout required by those government bodies to deliver 
a particular standard of training. Accredited doesn't necessarily mean endorsed. Only units and quals from national training packages are actually endorsed by the old NQC or now the National Skill Standards Council. Non-accredited refers to all other forms of course-based training, both formal and informal. Let's start with 30829QLD and 40563SA. What are these? Well, these are accredited course numbers uh, granted by the uh, state training authorities some time ago for the Advanced Diploma in Acupuncture and the Advanced Diploma of Applied Science Acupuncture. Both of these are accredited courses. Now, Edzard Ernst of the American Journal of Medicine said, After discarding reviews that are based on only three or fewer primary studies, only two evidence-based indications emerge. Even this evidence has to be interpreted with caution. Recent trials using placebos suggest that acupuncture has no specific effects in either of these conditions. That was in 2008. The point is that accreditation does not automatically provide legitimacy, but neither does non-accredited training. Let's look at our next friend here, NLP or Neuro Linguistic Programming. There are many different courses in this activity, and while some have been accredited, such as the Diploma of NLP in New South Wales, uh, written by the Holistic Healing Company, many are not. Taught by organizations with names like Dynamic Mind Works, Life Beyond Limits, and QT Transformation. These are often self-regulated and profess to meet the international standards for NLP and for registration with bodies such as the Australian Board of NLP or the International Medical and Dental Hypnotherapy Association. But again in 2005, the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry completed a comprehensive study of power therapies, including NLP, and concluded that it offers no new scientifically valid theories of action, no evidence of substantive improvement in psychiatric care, and is consistent with pseudoscience. Of course, using these skills to persuade other people to do something has many applications, but it doesn't sit alongside genuine psychiatry or science-based medicine. Value of training. Well, according to Donald Kirkpatrick in his 1959 Four Levels of Evaluation, they are the reaction of the students, the learning that takes place, the behaviour of the students in the workplace, and of course the impact on the business. So again, level one is reaction, and how do we measure that? Well, we normally have a uh, end of course questionnaire of some form that gives us an indication of what the student got from the training. Number two, to measure learning, we assess or test the trainees. Number three, behavior. Well, we ask about the behavior on the job. Is it better? Has it changed? And lastly, for business impact, we interview the client or get feedback from the client and uh, we discuss and measure uh, the outcomes. Return on investment is then calculated as a measure of course benefits over course costs times 100 to get your percentage. So if you spend $1,500 on a course and it returns $3,000 in value to the company, then you've had a 200% investment. And any good economist would tell you that 100% uh, or greater is preferred. So let's turn this argument on its head a bit. Regardless of the status of the training, whether it's accredited or not, 
the return on investment should be the deciding factor as to its value. Let's look at our examples. I've done some homework and found examples of accredited and non-accredited NLP practitioner training. So for this example, um, the NLP non-accredited training that I found, course cost was around $4,495. For an accredited one, uh, I came up with a course cost of $13,500 from one particular provider. Now, these are the published ones and some of them I had to inquire about, but it's rather difficult to get uh, straight answers from a lot of uh, training companies because they do want to protect their business. Uh, for the advanced diploma in acupuncture, the best I could get was a course cost of 19500 uh, but there are no non-accredited versions of acupuncture. This is mainly due to changes in the way acupuncture will be regulated in Australia. It will be the case that in the near future, a bachelor's degree will be required. So based on the NLP example alone, the non-accredited version seems to have a higher return on investment. And because there is no single regulator or governing body, non-accredited graduates may still seek acceptance into a number of industry groups and so therefore somehow legitimise what they have received. So purely from a numbers perspective, there doesn't seem to be a great calling for accredited versus non-accredited. However, there are other factors at play here. Long-term value might be measured differently. Now, I'm looking at the Australian Society of Clinical Hypnotherapists, and they do dedicate an entire page uh, to the benefits of an accredited course over, say, a non-accredited version. Hypnotherapy is one of those fields that does have a lot of non-accredited trainers out there but they do also have accredited versions. And by accredited, we go back to our original definition, saying that they are nationally recognised. So to summarise from the top, firstly, if you're going to compare accredited and non-accredited training, you've got to de define it in your own words. What does it mean? Number two, you have to look at whether it is a legitimate field of study. And legitimacy is subjective. I wish it wasn't. I wish it was science-based, but there will be a lot of people who will argue that the things I've talked about so far have plenty of evidence and good on them. So the legitimacy part of it is subjective. It becomes a discussion with you and your own conscience as to whether that is a legitimate field of study. And then next, you look at your return on investment. How much is it going to cost to do the study and what will I get back from it? Now, there are quite a lot of things to consider when you're calculating the return on investment. The cost benefits... Um, can be broken down into areas such as salary, wages, earnings for the organisation, opportunity cost for the uh, for the organisations as well. What else could they have spent their money on which could have got them more or less for that matter? So there are quite a few things to think about there and there is a fantastic presentation online about that. If you do look up return on investment for the value of training through Google, you might come across this presentation. Otherwise, I will leave a link on our Facebook page. So hopefully that was a little bit controversial and got you thinking about the value of accredited versus non-accredited training and the training itself. I challenge you to always critically analyse what you're going to study or what you're offering to the community. How can you legitimise what you're training and this doesn't just apply to new age or power therapies as such. It applies to everything. It can apply to business, finance, project management. What are you offering? Why is it 
of a particular value and how can you prove that to people, not just using marketing spin. Well, we're at the Regatta Hotel uh, in Coronation Drive, on Coronation Drive, overlooking the beautiful Brisbane River at the moment. It's very sunny, beautiful day. Very nice, friendly Friday afternoon. And we're joined by Andrew Kenny and Bill Kanoski. Hi there. Afternoon, folks. <laughs> and today's topic of discussion is, uh, is about accredited versus non-accredited training. So um, just to start things off, perhaps, Bill, can you tell us what you th- uh, do, do you value accredited training more than non-accredited training or vice versa, and why? It depends on the usage, but I lean towards the non-accredited training because non-accredited training can give you life skills in a manner that's responsive to your own needs uh, without the restrictions of the accreditation process. Okay, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, when you say restrictions of the accreditation process, and uh, by all means, Andrew, you can answer this if, if you like. What real restrictions are there in accredited training? I guess you have to um, look at the reasons, uh, people's reasons for enrolling in the accredited training. So if they're motivated and, and there's, they can see a reason for that and where they're going to transfer that knowledge to, I think it can be very valuable. I think if they're doing it for reasons that are extrinsic to that, they may not see it as valuable. The next step is, is I want to talk about the value for money when it comes to accredited versus non-accredited training. How, if you put yourself in a human resources position or a, an organization's training officer's position and you're about to outlay some money, how would you value a different course or a course for your staff? You'd have to look at it from the point of view of the individual. It's no good doing training for training's sake because if you do that, all you're doing is getting a qualification for somebody that they can use for some other purpose. What you really want is for that person to improve and to improve in a way that will benefit your own organisation. If, you if you've got a non-accredited course though, uh, then you're not going to give them a qualification. They can't necessarily take that to another organisation. Um, is that actually a benefit for non-accredited training then? I think most definitely if they learn the skills from that course that they can apply at work and away from work and it really does improve and enhance what they do at work and the relationships they have with people they work with and increase productivity as a result of that, I think you don't need the formal qualification to be able to see that as valuable. Now we're going to go on to the next topic which is facilitation versus training. You're both very experienced uh, trainers in your own right and I'll get you to give a a bit of background while we're, we're going through this in a second. However, what in your mind is the difference between a trainer and a facilitator, if at all? Well, I've been on both sides of the fence. I've been a trainer. I was in the military for a long period of time, and there we were required to train people to get ready for war. We need to transfer special skills to them and specialised knowledge to them, and we used different methods like explanation, demonstration, imitation, in a formal sort of manner. Um, And it was required that we confirm that the instruction was assimilated and that... um, that they understood what was going on and they could carry out the tasks or display the knowledge. On the other hand, facilitation involves drawing the knowledge from the knowledge of the participants, using that knowledge and also your own experience to maximise the benefit to the group. I like what you said at the end there, maximise the benefit to the group. 
could that also be the benefit to the organisation if it's a corporate training course? Yeah, I'd have to agree with what Bill has said and, and I've also been um, involved in both of those spheres. Um, I think, yeah, definitely can be benefit beneficial. I guess if it's more prescribed training, it's probably clearer to measure that benefit. Okay, yeah. So, so training. Do you mean when you say prescribed training, uh, like the company says, this, this is something you need to know, uh, therefore we're going to get a trainer in or we're going to get a facilitator in, depending on... That's right. So if you're looking at it from that definition that Bill gave, from a trainer's point of view, I think it is easier to measure in okay. the workplace, um, whereas your facilitation is is measured differently and it might be the mindset of the person who's done the training that would judge that. Yeah, good. Here's one concept for you. Think about sales training. Now, sales applies to everything we do and it can apply to the pub we're in right now. It can apply to a um, corporate office in the middle of the city, CBD. So sales is a, is a widely applicable skill set. In a sales training course, is it better to take a training approach or a facilitation approach and why? I think it'd have to be both. The training would be from the company's perspective as to what they really, the message they want their salespeople to be giving and so okay, forth. Yep. Whereas I think it would require quite a lot of good facilitation to make it meaningful and, and um, transfer that across so that it's, it's being utilised. I agree with Andrea. Um, what I've found is that sales training, in fact, is a mixture of soft skills and hard skills. Some of the skills are straight training. You need to train people to do things in a certain manner or to uh, approach things in a certain manner. And also, you need them to be able to be flexible enough to cater with different situations that occur. And the different situations that occur can only really be brought out through facilitation, I believe. Right, no, that's good. Uh, I, I wanted to get to that point because facilitation, in my view, is a group of people, as you rightly put, Bill, all contributing their own experience to that situation so that everybody learns collectively. And in sales training, Undoubtedly, people have experiences in sales, whether they have been in professional sales or they've just been on the receiving end of a selling uh, experience. And so therefore, it can only really be brought out through a facilitation model. I think so. And I think part of sales training is that understanding what the client wants as an outcome for that so that the right messages are coming out from those people's respective experience. And also, people learn best from stories. And these stories are best brought out through facilitation. Yeah, I love the storytelling and, and as professional facilitators yourselves, having a depth of knowledge in a subject is one thing, but having worldly experience, shall we say, uh, is a whole other thing. Yes, absolutely. And I often tell stories about doorbuster sales in Meyer Melbourne when I was on the retail floor there and uh, align them to the lessons that I'm trying to bring out in the facilitation I'm doing. That's great, yeah. And it doesn't really matter what the subject is because they, they all have lessons that can be uh, transferred from one skill set or one knowledge set to another. That's great. And now it's time for Terry's Delivery Tip of the Week. Okay, hi everybody. Um, my tip for today is uh, just something that I found re works really well when you're trying to get a point across or some new information across to people who are finding it hard to uh, do the sums, do the two and two and end up with a four that you're trying to get them to. And, and that's all about using an analogy. Now, I found a, a marvellous little quote from a guy named Dudley Field Malone. There's a lot about old Dudley that you can go into, um, but essentially he's a lawyer from the, from the 1920s and uh, philosopher. Uh, but his, his quote struck a chord with me. Uh, it says, um, his quote is, one good analogy is worth three hours discussion. 
if you're having trouble getting a point across to somebody and you can contextualize it by using things from their world, from their background, uh, now, of course, you, you must have, have connected with these learners at the start. You must have found out a bit about them and where they come from and what they do. If you can put these, uh, um, the principles that you're trying to put forward or, or the, the theory or the, uh, the, the skills and knowledge that you're trying to get across them in, in terms of something that they understand, uh, in an analogy, you will, see, you will see that light bulb go on. It is a real light bulb moment. Welcome, Lee. Today, we're going to talk about uh, SNR standards 20 and 21, compliance with legislation and insurance. And insurance. <laughs> so um, I believe you've got some uh, clues there, but let me read the first one and we'll go from there. So 20.1 says, the NVR registered training organization must comply with relevant state or Commonwealth, state and territory legislation and regulatory requirements relevant to its operation and scope of registration. So let's start with the word relevant. What is relevant legislation and requirements? Um, I think relevant refers mainly or, or you know, to a degree um, on the, the RTO requirements um, so obviously, I mean, without flogging a dead horse, they obviously have to comply with ASQA regulations and so forth. But relevant also relates to, and it talks about that there, the scope of registration. So if you're doing hospitality courses, for example, then you have to follow the regulations of the hospitality industry uh, as far as things like responsible service of alcohol are concerned, um, that type of thing, or what the tobacco laws might be, or what the food and hygiene laws might be, um, as well as any other sort of normal work workplace health safety um, regulations are concerned. The childcare industry has its own regulations that you have to follow. So in addition to looking after all of the ASQA requirements, um, you also have to look at the, the, the industry that your courses are actually involved in. And if there are any, um, any legislative requirements there, you need to actually comply with those as well or make sure that the students that you're teaching are aware of those. Yeah, it, look, it sounds quite logical when you say it that way, Lena. And look, thanks for putting it so clearly because a lot of people see that and they get scared that, oh, I don't know what regulations apply to RTOs, apply to this, apply to that. But when you just take it one step back, when it comes to RTOs, you've got your ASQA standards or you've got your AQTF standards. That's what you comply with. Yes. Uh, anything else isn't so much legislative. Like you have your local uh, state and territory acts that do relate to vocational education and yep. these you, you have to be aware of them, but there's only one act per state. So that's no big deal. But yep. as you very clearly put, it's more about the legislation and regulatory requirements of the industry or the scope that you're training in. Yes. I like yes. that. You would, you would hope that the trainers that they put on um, would actually be aware of all of those different things, but I'm pretty sure that that's what they actually mean with that. Yeah, I totally agree. So that's a nice, easy one. We can get past that one. Let's go on to number two. I can't wait to get to insurance. I want to jump this one almost, but, <laughs> but, but let's get to this one first. So 20.2, the NVR registered training organisation must ensure that its staff and clients are fully informed of the legislative and regulatory requirements that affect their duties or participation in vocational education and training. What does that mean? Well, that, that 
sort of follows on from the first one. So not only must you be aware of the fact and, and, and make sure that you're training your students in those things, your staff actually have to be aware of those as well. And I think the most important one there is the workplace health and safety one, um, you know, that all staff are aware of their obligations under uh, WHS. Um, and if they are going out and seeing industry, that they must be aware of those things as well, like a trainer, for example, going out into, um, you know, the hospitality industry into a, a, an industrial kitchen must be aware of the regulations that they have to comply with when they're in that person's workplace. Just, just speaking from experience too, sorry, Lita, cut you off there, but way back when I remember going into a, uh, uh, I guess I can I can say the name of the store, it was a Maya store way back when and having to sit through their OHS uh, brief before I went into the store. Uh, yep. So yeah, it, it doesn't matter what industry, uh, there are specific on-site requirements as well as industry requirements and uh, that's all that's saying isn't it it's saying that don't forget your staff need to know this too otherwise you're going to run into some legal barriers absolutely and i mean you know when it comes down to it if a trainer is going out into the workplace to deliver on the job training then technically speaking it is part of their duty as a trainer to make sure that that is a, a safe workplace even though the, the, the student may be working there on a day-by-day -day basis they really ought to go and do uh, a workplace health and safety audit on the place before they actually commence training yeah that's officially what they're meant to do isn't it <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think a lot of people forget that. Yeah. And I wish we could make that point more clear to all trainers out there. And look, anyone who's listening to this show, if you're a trainer and you're going on site, uh, it is your obligation to ensure that the training uh, venue is safe. Um, yeah. So it meets the health and safety requirements required under that particular industry. Uh, so as I said, uh, without flogging a dead horse it is your responsibility as a trainer to make sure that happens yes as a, according to snr20 the rto must make sure you're aware of it but you as a trainer have the obligation to make sure it's put in place absolutely excellent well let's get on to nice snr segue. oh sorry go on a nice segue into insurance Oh, isn't it what? Yes. Yeah, well, let's get on to insurance. SNR number 21, insurance. 21.1. There's only one and it's very short. It says NVR registered training organizations must hold public liability insurance throughout its registration period or throughout their registration periods. Now, the question I had was that a lot of RTOs employ, for want of a better term, contract trainers. I've been there. You've been there. We've all done yep. the contract trainer thing. Now, does a contract trainer uh, need to have public liability and professional indemnity insurance as a contractor, as well as the company or the RTO having its own? See, that's a really interesting question. And I, I think it comes down to, uh, depending on what the relationship between the contract trainer and the RTO is themselves, because I know a lot of RTOs employ contract trainers who work exclusively for that RTO. And under those circumstances, um, you know, they will generally take care of all of the insurance issues. But, and I, I, I looked this up on uh, business.gov.au. It's a really, really good little website. And there's a, a document on that called the Essential Handbook for Independent Contractors. And I'll just read you what it actually says there for insurance for independent contractors. It says, unlike employees, independent contractors are generally responsible for their own insurance cover and bear the commercial risk for losses suffered from any work performed. 
depending on the contract agreement, both the independent contractor and the hirer may have liability insurance and workers' compensation obligations. So it says that they are generally responsible for it, but it doesn't actually say they have to have it. Mm. So it comes down to the agreement that the RTO reaches with their contractor, I guess. There's no actual obligation there. And I think, yeah, I think that can be actually uh, disputed in law and that that's why laws are made. I mean, to, to have them heard in a court of law if things go wrong. And um, yeah. it sounds to me, and this is from a layperson's perspective, but by all means, if listeners are listening to this and they know more about this, please give your two Love cents worth. Yeah. yeah, it's a big question. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if to me it sounds like... Uh, if you're employed as a contractor, or sorry, employed, if you're put on as a contractor with a particular training company and it's obvious to the reasonable person that you are earning the majority of your income from that employment, then you are considered an employee. Now, that yes. goes back to basic corporate um, uh, corporate law. So that's yes. not so specific to RTOs. And in that case, then their uh, insurance should cover that person. But it's those trainers who have a larger percentage outside of that particular RTO so that they, they really are their own business. Yes. They have to think about their That's, own. Yeah. And I think you'll find when you see a, a lot of the um, the contractor con, uh, agreements between the RTOs and the, uh, the contracting trainer, it will specifically mention you must have X number of dollars worth of uh, uh, professional indemnity, you must have liability insurance and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's becoming much more prevalent and you, you can't actually go for a job as a contract trainer anymore these days, I think, without actually having it. Yeah, look, I totally agree. I, and and I've, I've seen that in many cases. Well, Lee, thank you so much for going through uh, SNR 20 and 21 with us. And um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we're going to hit some very interesting things about Eventmiss and about ASQA. Excellent. Look forward to it, Dan. All right. Thank you again. Okay. music we use on this podcast is kindly made available by dano at danosongs.com.